Welcome to Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today I'm pleased to interview Ginny Rorby about her new novel, Like Dust I Rise. Ginny Rorby is an award-winning author of seven books. The first six are middle-grade young adults that tell the stories of overcoming obstacles, growing, finding love, and compassion. Ginny lives in Fort Bragg and is active in the local community. Ginny's most recent release is Like Dust I Rise. The novel, which is written for all ages, chronicles a family's struggle to capture the American dream of land ownership. From the post-World War I era in a Chicago stockyard, to temporary success, to the ravages of the Depression and the Dust Bowl. It is told through the character Nona, who at age 10 leaves the city with her family for the Great Plains of Texas. Through the struggles, dreams, and tragedies, Nona narrates with a clear voice and determination that my grandmother would have called gumption. Welcome, Ginny. Ginny has selected a few passages to read. Go ahead, Ginny. This is chapter two. Papa sits in our little kitchen, waiting for Mama's answer. Overhead, the single incandescent bulb swings on its cord in time to the movements of the tenants who live in the flat above us. The ticking of the clock and the drip, drip, drip of the faucet are the only other sounds. Mama stands at the sink with her back to us, her face reflected in the soot-encrusted window. I've given the empty pea pods to the chickens in our tiny backyard and am drying the bowl I brought back from supper. The paper that was rolled up in Papa's coat is on the table. The corners held down by the salt and pepper shakers, a kerosene lamp, and an hourglass egg timer. It's a page from the Kansas City newspaper showing pictures of a watermelon the size of a wagon. Another of corn so tall a man stands on a ladder to harvest it and an angel wears a beauty queen banner like Miss Chicago wore, but hers reads opportunity. The angel has an arm around a farmer's shoulders, and she's pointing toward either the sunrise or the sunset. I can't tell which. Before I get a chance to read the caption, Papa puts on his glasses and says, she's directing the patient toiler to health, wealth, and happiness on the beautiful South Plains of Texas. He glances at me, then Mama's back and waits. The faucet continues to drip. Wherever we end up, Glenny won't be any farther from your family than we are now. By family, he means Mama's sister, two aunts, a passel of niece and nephews, all of whom live in Carthage, Missouri. Not that she's seen any of them since shortly after I was born. Her mother died of influenza in 1918. I don't know what happened to her father. When I've asked, she says she'll tell me someday. I know more about farming than you do, Owen. I recognize that smug tone of voice. I hear it a lot. But I don't know what Papa means when he says, that was 11 years ago, Glenny. He looks at his hands and turns them callous side up. Besides, they're growing so much wheat down on the prairie, a fellow doesn't need to know much to start. I'll learn what I need to know when I need to know it. Mama turns and looks at me. Nona, go check on Owie. She wants to talk to Papa without me listening. I go down the hall, then creep back and stand where she can't see me. Papa glances in my direction but doesn't say anything. Look what it says, he taps the newspaper. It's so easy to grow a crop. Men travel down from big cities, plant wheat, and don't bother to return till it's time to harvest. Mama leans against the sink and folds her arms. I've seen her do this many times, too. She's listening, but her mind is made up. Someone upstairs moves, causing our bulb to sway. 
lightning and darkening mama's expression. It makes her look bored, then mean, then bored. Nothing is going to happen to change for me at the yards. There's an edge to Papa's voice that's a blend of desperation and determination. Men willing to work for any amount they've offered arrive daily. I can't spend the rest of my life hooking a chain around the hind leg of a hog, hoisting it and listening to it shriek until I slit its throat, the chain, and hoist the next one. A V forms in my mother's brow, and her arms drop to her sides. I want to go see for myself if this, he points to the article, is for us. A homestead will give us a piece of something. Here we have nothing, and we never will. Papa hates his work, and I hate it for him. He's been talking about leaving Chicago since Owie was born three and a half years ago. He was a farrier in the Great War, but says there are now so many automobiles in Chicago, the only person left with a horse to shoe is the ragman. After the war, he went to work in the stockyards because he had Mama and me to support, and the slaughterhouses paid the best. When I asked Mama if she thought we'd ever really move, she said, Your Papa's been restless since the war ended, but he was born and raised in Chicago. He'll never leave here. But Papa started bringing it up again last month when the battles between Al Capone's South Side Gang and Bugs Moran's North Side Gang became headlines in nearly every edition of the paper. Back of the yards is in the southwest corner of the city. At night in the summer when the windows are open, I sometimes hear the rat-a-tat-tat of gunfire. Mama knows this isn't the best place to raise children, but everywhere else except Missouri is unknown and unknowable. As always, she listens and says, Someday, dear. I think the boy getting run over in front of our house has made Papa more determined. Death came to our doorstep. Now, for the first time, he knows where he wants to go, Texas. Mama looks worried. Papa puts his head in his hands. Mama comes and begins to rub his neck. I feel safe going back into the kitchen. Oh, he's asleep. It's not a lie. If he wasn't, he'd be in here with us. I've made up my mind, Papa says. We're leaving Chicago. Are we going to Texas? Go to bed, Winona, Mama says. Papa looks at me. Yes, sir, he smiles. The great southern plains of Kansas, Oklahoma, and the Texas Panhandle. Where exactly, I'm not sure. I'm going to be a pilot like Miss Earhart. Do all those states have planes? Papa doesn't get a chance to answer. Oh, Owen, what in the world will we do in any of those places? Where will the children go to school? I'm sure they have schools, Glennie. I'll farm, and if farming's not in the cards, I've heard tell of a cattle ranch in North Texas. I could go back to being a farrier. It sounds rash, Owen. Good God, Mother. You agree this is no place to raise children. It could have been one of ours mowed down by an automobile or caught in the crossfire of those gangsters. Remember Bobby Franks? What if that was Nona or Owie? Bobby Franks was a boy a little older than me. He was killed by two college students for the thrill of it. Mama gives Papa her little pitchers have big ears look and says to me, I told you to go to bed. I know who Bobby Franks is. I go to the door and look back. Was? Mama's staring at the water stain on the ceiling. When would we leave? I hold my breath. Papa shrugs. I'll go first and find us a place. You and the children can follow on the train. Mama's eyes widen. If we're going, we should all go together. A train. Our neighborhood is bordered on three sides by railroad tracks. Kippy and I love to watch the trains and imagine the places the passengers are, are coming from or going to. If we take a train, 
I'll be one of those people. I'm not going to search for work with the children in tow, Papa says. You have to wait here until I'm settled. How long will that take? Papa shakes his head. A couple months, maybe. Mama turns and stares at her reflection in the filthy, wavy glass. The light bulb sways. Her shoulders sag, and she bows her head. Papa gets up and puts his arms around her. I'm not your father, Glennie. He moves her hair. This escape from the bun and kisses the back of her neck. Okay, she says. My breath catches. She said, okay. We're going to ride a train, go to live where there are planes. I can't wait to tell Kippy and Mr. Fisher. Then I realize moving means leaving the other people I love. That was Jenny Warby reading from her latest novel, Like Dust I Rise. Coming up, Jenny talks about her inspiration and research techniques. What inspired you to write a novel about this period of American history? I suppose it boils down to wishing I'd known more about my parents' young lives. They grew up in the Midwest and were young adults during the Depression. I'm also really curious about my grandfather, who was a banker. He ended up owning thousands and thousands of acres and farmland in Iowa and Nebraska. I'll never know, of course, about how he came to own all that land. Foreclosures were a constant threat during the Depression and during the Dust Bowl years. Bankers don't fare well in this book. I suppose I thought about my—I don't know much about my father's youth, but my mother never ceased worrying about finances, and after she inherited the farms, about droughts. I suppose researching and writing about this was also an opportunity to walk walk a short distance in my parents' shoes. So the title of your novel was inspired by Maya Angelou poem, Still I Rise. The first stanza reads, You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. How does Angelo's poem about the black experience resonate with the story of the Dust Bowl? Well, of course, my characters weren't enslaved, but I feel um, Angelo wrote that poem as a testament to perseverance meant for all of us. It speaks to the incalculable suffering of all races experienced during the Depression, made worse for those who lived through the Dust Bowl, the worst natural disaster in American history so far. And the symbolism, of course, is, of the poem is inescapable, so I, I couldn't resist when I read that poem. So Nona herself, she's obsessed with becoming a pilot. Amelia Earhart is her hero. Why was it important for Nona to have a female hero to look to for inspiration? I think what's most important is Nona's recognition that in spite of being told, even by the, her father that she adores, that um, she can't, that you can I was never encouraged as a young girl to expect more for myself than the role of wife, nurse, mother, teacher. I think I broke out of the mold when I took my first flight at age 12 to visit my aunt and saw that there were women working on the airplane. And I set my sights on being, of course, I couldn't, didn't ever occur to me to be a pilot, but I set my sights on being a stewardess, flight attendant. And uh, never lost sight of that and kept with it until it happened. So I think that's the, that was important for Nona, too, to see what might have been, what could be. I'm impressed with the detailed research you did for this novel. Knowing when and how far Route 66 was paved, referencing the Children's Aid Society and showing us orphans at train stations waiting to be adopted by strangers. And then the ad that encouraged workers to come to Texas where the wheat grows itself. 
What was your process and, and how did you keep track of all the historical data? First of all, I got hooked on when I saw Ken Burns' documentary on the Dust Bowl. And I watched it, bought it, and watched it three or four times. And then Timothy Egan's book, The Worst Hard Time Ever, came out. And I read that about three times and outlined it by year. And so I knew, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to write a story about a young girl raised during that time. But I started out in my mind with Lindbergh's flight. And, of course, that didn't make sense. It much made much more sense to have Amelia Earhart, and especially since her exploits ended so sadly, so that Nona would eventually have to get past the fact that Amelia Earhart failed at her endeavor. I ended up with 24 single-space pages of bullet points. Most of them were done by year by year and filling in small bits of th- scenes that I thought I could put in. It was like trying to construct a plot out of a deck of cards. And I'd spent the first drafts were burdened with too many details, like how much wheat was uh, harvested each year and how much they got paid for it and all of that. Some of that's still in there, of course. And I combined a lot of the disasters that happened on an annual basis. I have a writer's group called the Mixed Pickles, and they kind of they straighten me out and help me eliminate some of the details and get the story out the way it hopefully was told in an interesting and good way. What was the hardest part of your research? Most of the other books that I have written, I've always gone there and experienced, and it happened in modern day times. Some of them were set here in my ha- at my house in the yard, and others were set in Miami where I was familiar. But this is the first book I've ever written where it was set back in, in time. And so I had no sense of the place. So I actually went to Dalhart, Texas, where it takes place and is part of the research. And once there, I was able to get a a feel for the surroundings, and I found where my characters live, and that helped a lot because I could then visualize it. Are you ready for your second reading? One of the reviews commented that if, if you were arachnophobic, skip chapter 33, so I decided to read chapter 33. The winter and spring of 1933 were dry and not cold enough to kill the next generation of insects. By the summer, we're overrun with centipedes and spiders. Bull snakes get into the hen house and eat our eggs. Mr. Anderson puts chalk eggs on Papa's shopping list. Oe puts one in each nest after he empties them in the mornings. The hens know the difference, but the snakes don't. Swallowing a chalk egg kills the snake. I feel bad about that until Oe drags me out and shows me a bull snake coiled around a fence post with three eggs in its stomach. We watch it squeeze the post to break the shells. This morning I open my eyes when the rooster crows and turn to see if Gracie is awake. The sun's not up, but there's enough light to make out her black-haired rag doll at the foot of her bed. Gracie's sitting up, her back pressed hard against the wall. She turns her head to look at me. Her cheeks glisten with tears. What's wrong, honey? Out of the corner of my eye, I see what I think is her rag doll lift two long, hairy, black legs and wave them in the air. Nona, don't move, Gracie. There was a story in last week's newspaper about a Hartley boy who was bitten by a black widow spider hiding in the wood he carried into the house. The paper said he died screaming in pain before his parents could get him to the new hospital in Dalhart. Thankfully, this isn't a black widow spider. It's a tarantula. 
not poisonous, but its bites can hurt. I slip out of bed and creep toward the foot of Gracie's bed. The tarantula swings around, rears up, and exposes its fangs. I stop. If I try to jerk the bedspread off, it might run right at Gracie. Hurry, Gracie whispers. Hush. I walk to the other side. The spider scuttles along to the foot along the foot of her bed. Gracie has the bedspread pulled to her chin, and she's holding the edge so tightly her knuckles are white. Let go of the spread, Gracie. She lifts her fingers. I take a corner ready to rip the spread off, but the spider dashes across and disappears over the far edge of the bed. Gracie scrambles away and runs into the kitchen. I hear Mama's startled cry. What? What is it? Giant spider! Gracie wails. The tarantula is now on the floor on the other side of her bed next to the wall. I'll never be able to sleep in here again if I don't find it. Mama appears in the doorway. Where is it? I don't know. Over there somewhere. Where's Papa? I don't know. Oh, he and Noel and a bunch of other fools are at the newspaper office letting the editor, John McCarthy, talk them into signing a pledge not to give up and leave this godforsaken place. We just need rain, Mama. Would you rather go back to Chicago? Maybe, in spite of what Celia says. It can't be as bad as here, she turns. Where are you going? To get a broom and kill that spider. I'll do it. I strip Gracie's bed to make sure it hasn't gotten between the blanket and the sheet, then crawl on my hands and knees looking for the tarantula. It has scrunched itself into the corner. When Mama hands me the broom, I poke it with the handle. It tries to back up, but it's trapped. It flails the air with two of its front legs. I feel sorry for it, even though I'm sure the tarantula raised, ra- tarantula's raised legs are in defense, not defeat. I read a poem in school called The Rime of the Ancient Mariner about a sailor who killed an albatross. After he kills it, the ship ends up stranded in the doldrums, which Miss Brown told us means no wind. I envied them until we finished the story. The crew blames him and makes him wear the dead albatross around his neck. Eventually, the entire crew dies for lack of water, and only the ancient mariner is rescued, but is doomed to wander the earth telling the story. Facing the tarantula, I'm reminded of the last two lines in that long poem. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. Don't be afraid, I whisper to the spider. I'm not going to hurt you. What are you doing? Mama, with Gracie cowering behind her, is at the door. I'm going to catch it and put it outside. Don't be silly. Just kill it, Nona. If you put it out, it may come back in again. I straighten and look at her, but I don't know what to say. I can't tell her I'm not going to kill it because of a poem or that maybe if by not killing it, we won't lose everything like other farmers have. Maybe that's the problem. We've nearly killed the land, and now, like the mariner, we're marooned but in an ocean of dust. Mama goes to pick up Katie, who's crying, but Gracie squats down so she can watch. Go get the dustpan, I say. I'm going to tell. Tell what? You're supposed to kill it. Go get the dustpan or I'll put it back in your bed. I open the window and I pull her bed away from the wall. Gracie puts the dustpan on the mattress and runs back to the doorway. The thought of trying to pick up the tarantula with the dustpan nearly makes me change my mind. I walk between the bed and the wall and put the dustpan between us. I hold the broom so I can pin it against the wall if it tries to rush me and sink its fangs into my hand. I inch the pan forward. 
the tarantula's front legs wave. It's too dark to see if its fangs are out. I glance at the open window, which is between our beds. If I convince the spider to climb in the pan, I'll have to carry it around the foot of Gracie's bed to get to the window. I slide the pan forward until it's under its second pair of legs, then its third, then its fourth. My heart pounds as I place the head of the broom perpendicular to the handle of the dustpan, lift and back out of the corner. She's got it, Gracie shouts. Mama, she's got it. I can't see under the broom, but I can feel the weight of the tarantula in the pan. Every nerve in my body tingles as I back around the end of the bed toward the open window. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Mama in the doorway holding Katie, who is still wailing. I reach the window, lift the broom, and flip the tarantula out, then lean over in time to see it scuttle into the house. Mama turns away. I don't know why you didn't just kill it. She can't know that I just saved us and myself from having to roam the earth, telling the story of what went wrong here. That was Ginny Rorby reading from her new novel, Like Dust I Rise. Admittedly, Dorothea Lange is one of my heroes. Did you select her photo of a Dust Bowl refugee child for the cover? I did. I got lucky. I googled children in the Dust Bowl or during the Depression. I'm not sure which. And that picture of, it's a, a picture of a little girl in her bed and she's it's a very, very shabby-looking room. She's clearly depressed-looking and in sort of rag, tattered rags. And it was just a, an absolutely perfect picture to me to depict my character. And um, since Dorothea Lang took the pictures for the government, they were in the public domain. So we were free to use it as the cover. It's like somebody handed that to me as a gift, along with Maya Angelou's poem. The character of the mother is frustrated with her life. There are hints that she had a better life before marriage. Who inspired this character, and how does her life expectations impact her response to the turmoil of the 30s? The character of the mother is is definitely my mother. My mother's middle name was Glennie, so all the characters in the book are named after family members. My mother was raised as an only child and very well-off and she had her own pony. She had a car, pet cardinal. And my father wasn't a very successful businessman and came close to bringing us to ruin on a number of occasions. And I think my mother never quite adjusted to that. She was the uh, impetus for making Glennie the kind of person she is, who's just unable to, to cope, even though she doesn't come from the same financial have the wherewithal that my mother did. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell, interviewing Ginny Warby about her new novel, Like Dust I Rise. Coming up, Ginny discusses the publishing business, her writing process, and how she reacted to being on a banned books list in Texas. I have a few questions that will interest the writers in our audience. Black Rose Writing is your publisher out of Texas. How does it compare to your experience working with the larger publishing houses like Tor, which is a subsidiary of Macmillan? I've worked with, not only have I worked with Tor, two of my books, but Dial Penguin, Scholastic, Learner, all of them large publishing companies. One of the things, all of them turned this book down. One reason is that I'm considered a middle grade YA author, and it didn't fit either of those categories as far as they were concerned. The character is too young in the beginning to be a YA, young adult novel, and too old in the end to be a middle-grade novel, and so that was rejected for that reason. 
So a friend told me about Black Rose, which is a small publishing company in Texas. And I thought, why not? And so I'm very happy that I did, obviously. They didn't have those kind of restrictions. We just categorized it as a coming-of-age novel and went from there. The difference between the major, the big publishers and them is one thing with Black Rose that only took nine months. Normally it takes 18 months to two years with the big publishing houses. They do not have an editorial staff, so there's nobody to do the copy editing and the um, and function as an editor. So you kind of need to farm that out or have really close friends or a good writing group, which I have both of. And they do not pay in advance. They do uh, most of those, the big, you know, the other publishing companies I've worked on in advance and then a reduced rate of royalties. Black Rose doesn't pay the advance, but the royalties are much more generous. They're 20% rather than 5%, somewhere around there. And they were easy to work with. I mean, the creator of Black Rose, I haven't ever sent him an email that I didn't get a response back, usually within the hour. I really have enjoyed working with them. I'd recommend it. Are you planning any public readings locally in the near future? Yes. Norma Watkins, who's in my group, my Pickles group, she and I are going to read together. She's got a book coming out from Black Rose also, and we're going to read together April 24th at Little River Inn in the Abalone Room. Where can people buy Like Dust I Rise? Of course, Gallery Bookshop is the first choice for me. And I always support your local bookstore if you possibly can. Otherwise, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the other, Kobe, uh, Apple, all of those. So your 2019 YA novel, Freeing Finch, is a book about a transgender youth finding their way in a rural world. How did it feel when you found yourself on a bad book list in Texas? <laughs> it made me feel like I finally made it. It is one of the books that the congressperson from Texas is trying to ban because the character is transgender. And I I really, I think I'm in great company and I'm just thrilled that it that was even recognized as one of the books that they want to ban in Texas, because that means it must be really worthwhile. So let's get back a little bit to more general writing questions. How did you get your start as a writer? I, I call myself an accidental author. I was a really poor student in all through school, but in high school, I failed English over and over again and had to take remedial English And when I went to junior college. And I never, it never in a million years occurred to me to be a writer. But I was gone back to University of Miami in, um, to work on a degree in biology. And I went and I was working as a flight attendant. So I flew to London every Friday night, came home on Sunday and went to school all week. And a friend of mine called and she had found an abandoned dog. And she asked if I had some Dramamine from the airplane and that we could drug the dog and take it to the take it to a vet. It was had no hair on it, had mange so bad that there was no hair left on it at all except for one stripe down its back, which made it look like it might have been a Weimer on her. It had an open sore on its side with maggots living in it. And she and I drugged the dog and we took it to the vet and had it put to sleep because she lived she couldn't she was off to vet school. And I lived in an apartment building, so we couldn't keep it. 
And on the way, I was so disturbed by that, that on the way home, I wrote a, a description of how we had found the dog, what we had done, and took it to the vet and put it to sleep. And I folded it up and put it in my stewardess purse. And a year later, I was at the Miami News trying to sell a photograph of an Everglade kite, the endangered kite in Florida, and found that story that I had written. And I wrote it, that read it. And I was crying when the editor finally came out to see the photographs that I had brought in. And I wrote at the top, we found your dog, and gave it to her. And the next day, it was an editorial in the newspaper. And the editor of the newspaper called and said, if I could write like that, they'd publish anything I wrote. And so I had calculus, chemistry, physics, and um, yeah, I think that was it, left to take for my degree in biology. And I took a creative writing class instead. And <laughs> that was and the rest is history. I started writing. Have you started your next novel? Will it be a return to young adult, or will you continue to write for all audiences? Oh, yes. I have three unpublished novels, and so I'm rewriting, just finishing up rewriting one of them, and the other one is actually with an editor um, at Scholastic, but I haven't heard anything back from them. So are you returning to the young adult genre? The one at Scholastic is young adult. The other one that I'm finishing is adult fiction. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Upwelling. You've been listening to an interview with award-winning author Ginny Rorby about her new novel, Like Dust I Rise. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music is provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzwax.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.